There are those who say that life is an illusion, and that reality is simply a figment of the imagination. Look who the birds have brought us this week. Welcome, and congratulations for crossing the threshold of realities. There's much to share if you know the language of the birds. Welcome back to the God Box Cafe. I have a special surprise, and this is the beginning of a new series of conversations that we are going to be having with respect to introducing you, my audience, to the glorious movement of new entrepreneurs with conscience and heart who are embracing this Aquarian age and utilizing it in the best of all possible ways to guarantee a future for our children's children. That being said, I would like to introduce you to a most glorious example of what I've just described. Laska Pare, welcome to the Godbox Cafe. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Now, we go back a few years with respect to our first encounter, and you have accomplished a multitude of things since I last spoke with you, much of which I am in awe of, and I'm living through you vicariously, Laska. So if you would share with our audience the adventures that you had that took you to where you are now and what you have created as a consequence of those experiences. Sure. I can't quite remember the year we met Yvonne. Maybe was it 2013 or 2014? Something along those lines, yes. Yeah, yes. so at, at that time I was living in Toronto and I had been going through a very big year. I had just finished grad school. I moved to Toronto. I'm really looking for a fresh start and it ended up being a real year of discovery. I am um, enrolled in all types of different classes and we met through one of them through Catherine Barga. I also was taking landmark courses and I just was really experiencing and discovering life and it became very clear to me that I really wanted to go out and do something meaningful and how that evolved it led to me wanting to create a global community book project which I ended up calling Passion Over Past and for whatever reason, I got this feeling that I needed to go to India to write this book and collect these stories that would be part of this book. And so on a whim, I ended up selling everything I owned and moved to India. And the purpose of the book was to collect testimonies from women all over the world who had experienced difficulty because they were victims of abuse or they encountered a challenging life experience. And though these women experienced these hardships, they all reached this point of empowerment where they realized they could choose to be powerful in spite of their past experiences. And so I went just on this journey of speaking to women and having conversations with them and coaching them through their struggles that they had faced and including their stories in this book. I mean, I ended up spending time living in India. I then went to Nepal. I then went to Hong Kong and China. Yeah, I ended up spending just several years living overseas in Asia, working on this book project, and I ended up publishing it. Yeah, it was a really poignant moment for me of just realizing that you can do anything you want that you put your mind to. 
And I remember finally deciding to come back to Canada and being really clear that I really wanted to now start life and create something purposeful in the world in a, in, a, in a way in which that was a little more sustainable because while I was living overseas, although it was really fun, I was um, moving a lot, which is really tiring and taxing. And so I came back to Toronto again <laughs> and I, I got a job working in an advertising agency as a copywriter. And I knew that I didn't want to stay in Toronto. I just felt like this isn't the place for me one thing that really sparked my interest living in Asia was I was just so present to how much waste there was and garbage. And so I knew I wanted to create a business that had something to do with the environment and the envir environmental sustainability. I didn't know how I was going to do it because all of my formal education was in communications, undergrad and master's degree in communications. And so I wasn't had studied anything related to the environment, but I was just very passionate about the topic. And so I ended up once again, packing my things and just moving to British Columbia, uh, moving to the other side of the country. And I had never been to BC. I had never been to Vancouver Island, which is off the mainland of BC. It's, a, it's an island of about a million people almost. And I just moved there and I didn't know anybody. And I just started life again and said, okay, well, this is where I, I want to create this. And it was very clear from me from very early on that it was a it was a very special place just living on an island and it was just so beautiful like a, it's it's amazing to wake up and see the mountains and the ocean and it's just so good for your soul. And so I got a job because I needed to start working and making some money. And so I, I started working in government and while I was working in government I became very involved in the green team which was a internal volunteer colleague-led sort of program and the whole point of it was just to empower your colleagues to take greener actions so it was it was something that I just kind of did voluntarily throughout my work week I would assist uh, my colleagues in living more green and sustainably and one of the areas that I became very passionate about was single-use coffee cups you know at 10 o'clock all the government workers would go and take their break to get a coffee and they'd come back and I would see a garbage can full of single-use coffee cups and lids every day. And it just drove me nuts because I was like, okay, well, if everybody's doing this every day and we have roughly, you know, 30,000 workers in government, that's a lot of coffee cup waste. And so I started this program in government called the Mugshot Campaign, where I encouraged people to become guilty of killing the paper cups. So I made this mugshot backdrop. Well, I took their pictures of them with, you know, like the jail mugshot kind of look with their reusable mugs. And it was to encourage people to surrender their single use and instead commit to using reusable. And that campaign got a lot of traction because people were so curious when they saw these posters around the building of all these people with mugshots. <laughs> and they were like, what is this? And I ended up enrolling our executive and asked them if we could purchase coffee China mugs for everybody in the building so that when we had events, because we'd have staff events and things like that, instead of buying single use cups, we could encourage everybody to bring their reusable mug. And so that's what we did. The executive got on board and we sponsored these mugs. And so everybody in the building had their own mug and were encouraged to bring their mug with them to all the events we had. And so it was a really successful campaign. And that was just kind of one small thing I was doing that really showed me again, wow, it doesn't take much to influence people. You just get them on board. And I 
started doing more and more in relation to this topic of coffee, coffee cups. And I started to think, well, what happens to all these single-use coffee cups? And the coffee cups themselves aren't, you can't recycle them in paper recycling, like a lot of people think you can, because they're lined with plastic or wax. So they're essentially garbage. And then in terms of coffee cup lids, those lids, because of their size, often don't get recycled through regular mainstream recycling because they're so small. So more or less, those are also trash. So I was thinking, okay, well, there's got to be something we can do with these lids. I ended up hearing about a grant that the government was offering, and it was available to any business that was going to help manage what, what is called post-consumer plastic, so PCR plastic. So it's basically used plastic. So I wrote a proposal and I got the grant. <laughs> I was one of 10 businesses in BC that got the grant. And so what my business was doing, so my business is called Flipside Plastics. We were, for the last eight months, we were running this pilot project where we set up buckets at different cafes around town. And once a week, we'd have a volunteer cyclist who would bike to all of the cafes we had partnerships with, collect the lids, and then bring them back to our location where we washed, shredded, and then injected the dishes into uh, soap dishes. We were making soap dishes from reusable or from lids, essentially. So the whole point of the project was to demonstrate that waste can become a resource and we can repurpose that waste here on the island because we live on an island the downfall is we ship all this product to our island and then we ship our waste off the island and this is constant shipping so my thought was well why can't we try and process and deal with our waste here and be more responsible so that was the premise of the pilot was to demonstrate that we could in fact take waste and then repurpose it into a product and so we did that's what I've been up to <laughs> in a nutshell. That's extraordinary. From the point of conception of the idea and the issuance of the grant, how long did it take you before you were in a position where this became an actual going concern? How long did it take from concept to actual functional process? Well, so part of getting, <laughs> if anybody knows the government, they always have a timeline for things. And so they were very clear that if you got the funding, the project had to be delivered and complete by the end of the eight month period. So for example, I applied for the grant in January of 2021. I was issued the funding in April of 2021. The pilot launched in May, and then I had to be complete by this December. So it was literally scrambling to pull everything together to set up this whole center, get the machinery, and basically pull this off. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was very fast, but I mean, uh, it kept us on our toes and we definitely learned a lot throughout the process. And the other thing that was interesting too is every municipality has different recycling rules. So bear in mind where you might be listening from, you might have different rules than we do. But the funny thing about Vancouver Island is that we have so many municipalities considering we're such a small island which is very unnecessary you could say so I could walk two blocks and be in a different municipality and I could walk two blocks in another direction and be in a different municipality so that causes some problems because <laughs> nothing is the same there's no same rules depending on where you are so if I buy my coffee in one municipality and then I walk home with it and then I dispose of the lid into my recycling bin at home 
it may get recycled depending on that municipality's rules, but it may not. So that was kind of the challenge. And also because of COVID, people weren't allowed to use reusable coffee mugs. So there was this sudden surge of single use mugs that usually wouldn't be as prominent as it was, but because people weren't allowed to use their reusable mugs, you had to use the single use cup and lid. So essentially we were providing a way for restaurants or cafes to divert a waste stream and turn it into something that probably would have just become waste. Under those circumstances, that would have added more stress with respect to how you were having to circumvent all of these additional mandates. Mm. And I'm astonished that you were able to launch it at precisely the point where these types of undertakings, at the best of times, entrepreneurial work is challenging to say the least. But for you to have undertaken this under these extraordinary circumstances, I applaud you for your tenacity and for your perseverance. And to what degree would you attribute your, I mean, I know you from a personality standpoint and the fact that you were, I remember when we first met and you were doing running, you didn't do just running, you were setting well, records. Ultra running, you could call Ultra it. running, yeah. So I'm sure that you applied those same techniques and level of discipline to anything that you decide to put your mind to. But to what extent do you think that your experience in Asia prompted you to really be dedicated to this as a whole from every level, not just practically, but spiritually? I think when you reach a point, and everybody I think has a different point where they reach it. And for me, was the The reason why I really left and moved to India was because that year I had three close friends of mine pass away and they were all really young and they were, it was very tragic and sudden. And it was like the kick in the butt to be like you, I really don't know how long I'm going to be here because two of my friends that passed away, we were 24 at the time. And so it was just like, wow. And then my other friend was one of my running partners. He was 50 and died of a heart attack on a run. And for me, it was just very much like, okay, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. So I just better go do this stuff and figure it out. So, I mean, on a spiritual level, I just felt I have to do this. I'll find a way throughout this whole year. And this year was very challenging, not just because of the mandates, but my father also passed away suddenly this year, who I didn't get to see because of COVID. And so it was really hard to be far away from your family, not being able to get that closure And I think, though, what makes me always press on is just knowing I'm here for a reason and this matters. And it's even the days where you don't feel like getting up and doing it. The second I start working on my business, I feel so inspired and excited because I know what I'm doing is having an impact and it's making a difference. And every time I talk to somebody and I explain what I'm doing and you hear their reaction and they light up. It makes me excited because what I'm doing matters. And I just know like in my gut at this point, I was put on this planet. I'm, I don't know how long I'm here for, but I got to get it done. <laughs> and so I think I'm just driven by that whole idea. Of, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I got to keep pushing on and doing what I know feels good. And for me, doing this as hard as it was, and I mean, like I mentioned before, my background is in communication. So when it came time to having to buy the machinery and hook up the electrical. I was in all these discussions with electricians and tradespeople, and I had no idea what I was talking about. 
they were asking me, do you know this? What type of electricity do you need? Do you need three phase or single phase? And I was, I don't know. To say there was a learning curve is an understatement because I was entering a whole new world where I didn't know anything. But at the same time, I was, what can I learn? (laughs) And in our day and age, you have the internet. So I would spend a lot of nights with my husband on YouTube teaching myself electricity. <laughs> so it's, I just look at it as like an opportunity, right? I recognize it's, yeah, it's, it's not my strength and I probably won't ever become a, an electrician, but there's a way you can learn to get yourself to the next point. And I realized that's what it's about in business too. It's not necessarily having all the answers. It's about figuring out what I need to know to get to the next point and leveraging my network to source people who I do know who might have the answers to help me out. So not being afraid to ask for help is a big one, which I know is tough for everybody. Nobody likes to ask for help. (laughs) The fact that you have faced that level of adversity and managed to surmount all that is in and of itself, nothing short of remarkable. And once again, I can't sing your praises enough. How large an enterprise do you have now as it currently exists? Yeah, so we're still small. So we just, like I said, so we just finished the pilot, which ended in December. So now what we're doing is just before the holidays, we sort of did a reassessment of how are we going to pivot so that the model succeeds. And one of the things we realized that as nice as it would be to continue with this pickup to different retailers in town, it's not economically feasible. We have to be moving a lot more waste to produce more product. And that was kind of an issue we faced is it takes, in our case, it was taking roughly 36 lids to make one soap dish. So you got to be collecting a lot of lids to be producing one product. And so what we ended up facing throughout the pilot was demand outmet the amount of inventory we had. So a lot of people wanted our product, but we actually just couldn't produce enough because we weren't collecting enough waste. So you as the business owner have to decide, okay, how are we going to pivot the business so that it's profitable and scalable? So that's been a big part of the strategic work I've been doing right now with my team. We've decided that we are no longer going to do the production and collection in-house. Instead, we're going to source recycled pellets from a recycler, like an actual recycler, and then work with a manufacturer so we can just produce a higher volume of product. It's just, it's so much to manage. We were managing the whole value chain from waste to product production and just getting a product to market is a challenge in itself. So I've decided to cut that value chain, not even in half, but like maybe take on a third of it. And we are instead outsourcing, but it's also going to be local in BC. So we're sourcing recycled pellets that are produced from locally produced waste here. So it's all still local waste. And then we're having it manufactured also in BC. So we're still keeping the process local because for me it's very important that we support the Canadian economy and the labor market in Canada and so our product will still be very much a Canadian product it'll just be made in a way in which it's a lot more sustainable I think for everyone. (laughs) Have you also considered expanding your inventory with respect to what you could actually create? You've shown the soap dish as a prototype sample of what you have up until now been able to produce in terms of waste recycling. Is there anything else that you've thought about that would be usable? Our goal is to create home goods. So we really want to create premium recycled products. So a lot of people don't know this is, and it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of people often wonder, well, why is a recycled product 
more expensive considering it's not new material. Well, and that's because of all the work it takes to collect the waste, to clean the waste, to then repurpose the waste again. So there's a premium added on to recycled pellets because of the process it takes to recover it. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. It doesn't cost very much to source virgin plastic, but it's also really bad for the environment and we have too much of it. So it's our whole premise is using plastic that already exists because there's a lot of it and repurposing it into new products. So right now we're working with an industrial designer to do a new iteration of the soap dish, one that's a little more uh, functional. Not that our first one wasn't, but it's just going to have drain holes and, you know, we've just learned some things. And eventually just to continue in this area of home goods. So focusing on home goods that are necessary for the home, you can put a design spin on them. And one thing that makes our product very unique is our product kind of looks like marble. So it's, it's a plastic product, but it has this very premium look to it. And that's a very distinct feature that we make sure we have as part of our product. So it has almost this premium marbly look, even though it's plastic. So it's almost allowing people to reconsider the potential of plastic because we're playing with how it can look. It's the, and I think most people think of plastic as just this cheap disposable thing because most of the time you just see it in a disposable form. You see it in packaging everywhere. I think there's something like 40% of all plastic waste is single-use packaging. So I really want to get people to think, wow, look at the potential plastic has because it's a very strong material. It lasts hundreds of years, which we often talk about as a problem. Oh no, plastic's in the ocean. It's going to be there for hundreds of years. Like that's a problem. But I mean, if it's used in the right format, we can have a product in place for hundreds of years. And that's a great thing because then that means you don't have to replace products as easily. It's just a matter of how they're made. So my team is really focused on making simple, functional and sustainable products that are going to be around for a while and products that are nice enough that people won't want to get a new one every year because they're like, oh, this went out of style. It's very much finding that timeless look. What are you doing in relation to making the public at large aware of this as an alternative to purchasing something that would end up being disposable once again, as far as, for example, what you've got now in terms of a soap dish? Many people are so used to just tossing something as opposed to maintaining it from a durability and longevity standpoint. They look at it purely from an economic, I can buy this and it costs me less, and they don't have that long term awareness. What have you done in the way of making this known to the public at large so that if you are looking for an alternative, this would be where to go? Yeah. So that's a large part of what we're doing right now is we're really not just building a product. We're building a brand and our brand is very focused on wanting people that are attracting people who value what we value, which is things like the environment, things like quality products, things like good design. So we are really selling a lifestyle. And if you believe in the lifestyle of wanting to live a fulfilled life, then our products are probably for you because they will fulfill you in ways of not only doing a task for you, but they will have you feel like that sense of purpose. Because when you say, just do something small during your day, like washing your hands, you'll see our soap dish and think, right, I'm contributing to the betterment of the environment and the social community 
just by making more conscious purchase decisions. So that's a big part of what we're doing is it's not, it's not just about selling a product that you then have in your home. It's about reminding people that throughout your day, you go through endless amounts of motions and activities. And if you can be reminded in these small increments during the day of how you are making a difference is specifically through what you buy, I think is really valuable because so many people often say, I want to help the environment. I don't have time or this climate crisis issue is so big. What can I do? And so I think just being attentive to your purchasing power and supporting companies that are doing their part to really make sure they're having transparency and integrity behind what you're doing is you supporting that same mission. So you don't have to go out there and do what I'm doing and start a whole recycling (laughs) company. You can just support the companies that are already doing that work if you really want to make a difference in that way. And so for us, we really value not just the environment, but what that means, just doing good and doing better. And so if people like that concept, then supporting our products and buying our products is how you could be part of that. If someone wanted to actually participate directly in what it is that you're doing, how would you recommend, apart from purchasing, that a person who is like-minded would try to embrace this from an active work standpoint? I would definitely say come to our website, flipsideplastics.com, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Because in our monthly newsletter, we also give tips each month. We give good company updates about what we're doing. And we also always have a little section about recycling knowledge or plastic knowledge. Did you know? And so we're we're educating people along the way so they can learn how they can make a difference in their life in these small ways without just, for example, buying a product, but what other things they can do, what maybe the questions they could ask in their communities. Because like I said earlier, everybody, depending on where you're listening, might be in a different municipality. So maybe a first step might just be going on your city's website and learning what are the rules around recycling. And maybe you were throwing something in the recycling bin that should have been there. And that's a big issue too. I mean, I think a lot of people, I know my staff, especially, it wasn't until they started working for me, did they realize how many things they were putting in the recycle bin that they instead should have been bringing to the landfill and ensuring it got properly recycled. I know people put like spray paint cans and aerosol cans and things like that in the recycling bin. And That's actually really dangerous. Recycling, the recycling industry has one of the highest worker accident rates because of things like that, because people throw those things in the recycling bin, they get dumped into the truck, and then when they get brought to these centers for sorting, they're moving things with dumb trucks, and there's often explosions because there's pressure caused. And so just educating yourself more about, oh, how could I be ensuring that I'm doing my part just within my own household? to try to reduce my waste or ensure that I'm, if I am throwing something out, I'm doing it properly and responsibly is a big deal also. Has anyone in the educational field approached you as far as incorporating this into the curriculum where schools are concerned? Um, So we, we were hoping as part of our pilot to do workshops for schools and that just didn't happen because The mandates changed every week Mm. and it was just too hard to coordinate. Next year, I've already been asked to do some workshops with one of our local education centers. So I'll be doing a workshop each month. They do a different workshop on a different topic. And so they've asked me to do a a workshop on the end of life of plastic. So I'll be doing a workshop there. If, If you're in the Victoria area, it'll be at the compost education center. 
So yeah, I, there, there has been opportunities where people have reached out and a lot of people have just kind of said, how can I do what you're doing? And that's kind of a tricky question <laughs> because it's not easy to, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's not easy to do what I did. Like, like I said, to get the machinery I had to get, it's very costly, which is why the grant was helpful that I received from the government. And you do have to have a certain type of knowledge in that area to run a, a little recycling center. But that said, I know even where I live in Victoria, they have um, community grants that you can apply for through the city. So if you wanted to start a community group that focused on recycling certain types of plastics, I also know that, again, out around Vancouver Island, there's several other small islands, smaller than us, and they don't have any recycling facilities. So I know some of the local residents have come up with their own little program to ensure that there's some type of recycling it's not impossible. There's always ways to start something. Like I mentioned earlier, what I did in government, it wasn't a huge campaign, but it made a difference. So it's just finding what you can do within your area and to try to have an impact of some kind. And I think that the important part is re remembering that any type of impact is a good impact and not one person or company or organization is going to solve this plastic problem we have. It, it takes a collections of people and groups and societies all working together. So I think just being mindful of that, knowing and asking where can I start or what could we focus on? I know, for example, one school group is just focusing on collecting bread tags, you know, little plastic bread tags and repurposing those. And if you think about it, they don't seem like much, but if you add them up, that's a lot of bread tags and they have no way of being recycled right now. If you throw those in your recycle bin, they do not get recycled. They just go in the garbage. So, I mean, the fact that they're trying to do something with that is, is a good thing. Yes, increasing awareness is undoubtedly part and parcel of how we can make these changes in our communities that may look like they're starting off on a very small scale, but that's always the way things happen and then it escalates. And I'm sure this was all divinely driven in the fact that you went out West when you chose to. I think for the most part, I don't think it's accidental that so much from an innovative standpoint is catalyzed out west. It seems that, I don't know if it's the ocean and the mountains or some kind of energy there that you've got, you know, Silicon Valley, everything is happening and sparking out west and then slowly it makes its way out east. But this whole notion of geography, I know that the BC weather has been pretty difficult over the last little while. Has that directly affected you in terms of your operation? It hasn't directly affected us. It's interesting because as I mentioned, I'm from Ontario and you never hear of the wildfires in Ontario. And then I remember when I moved to BC and wildfire season is a whole other thing that then just becomes part of your new normal. And this summer was awful for wildfires. We were lucky that in that the smoke wasn't blowing on us like it had in previous years and it becomes very hard to breathe with the smoke but we do get like the hazy sky and you just can't do very much so we weren't directly impacted in terms of it shut down our operations I mean our team that was biking around collecting our waste made sure that he was only doing it on days where the air quality was good because it can be very debilitating with the smoke and then in terms of the flooding that occurred in the fall that didn't impact Again, my operations directly, however, the one highway that connects Victoria to the rest of the island was completely washed out. 
there was no ability to like go anywhere <laughs> outside of the, the city for a couple of weeks. It's definitely that the weather here has gotten so drastic in the four years I've lived here. I can't believe how much more intense it's got. So it's a good reminder that like we need to be prioritizing the environment. And I don't know if you're aware, but um, one of the huge news stories that's been happening here for quite some time is the old growth deforestation. So they have been cutting old growth trees and they're the last remaining old growth trees. And you just wonder why, <laughs> why are we doing this? And people have been protesting the longest protests that I think that's occurred in Canada is around the people who are protesting to keep these trees, protect these trees. And it, it's very frustrating because, you know, I'm grateful I received this grant from the government for my work, but yet the government is not doing any work to protect the trees, although they like to say they are, but they're not. And that's one of the main issues we're having. If you think about these forest fires, these forest fires are often happening in places where there's been logging and it's just what's left is almost hay. It's basically kindling. It's the perfect fire starter. So when you're logging and clearing these huge forests, it's leaving just dry lumber just ready to catch fire with old growth so moist and dense and that's such a protection for the forests we need to have these it just there's no benefit there's no long-term benefit in cutting down something that has been here for thousands of years why there's other areas we could cut and log that's been a really active discussion here it's a definitely a touchy topic but that i've been happy to see that that's gotten some national press i know my family back east has seen it in the National Post a few times. And that's definitely still at the forefront here of protecting old growth. Well, just the fact that manipulation of natural resources has been exploitative over multitudes of decades. And we are rapidly transitioning out of an industrial revolution into an information one. And in fact, we're not even using books as much as we're using digital versions of that. So that in and of itself is a great way to preserve the forest canopy. But it still takes a certain, it could very well be your your generation and the subsequent ones who are coming to an understanding of this whole top-down pyramid structure of power is in no way supportive of anything, our planet and the people and all of the life on it. So once again, uh, you're, you're pioneering and spearheading a movement, which I'm sure is definitely going to take off and explode over the next little while as a consequence of crises that take us to the next level. Usually people, unfortunately, are only driven to do something when an occurrence of a level of magnitude that their lives are impacted is going to make them start rethinking and reevaluating and reprioritizing. But I still remember the conversations that we had. You're no stranger to environmental issues and sudden mother nature expressing herself. Cause I remember you were in Nepal precisely when the, when there was an earthquake and I was connecting with you just to make sure you were okay through the course of that event. Yeah, so that was in 24, no, 2015, there was the earthquake in Nepal, it was 7.8 magnitude, and I was hiking by myself in the Himalayas. And that, yeah, that was a really transforming experience just to really be in a space where you have no control, and you didn't know what was going to happen, being a five days walk in the mountains. So it's not like 
you can just come down and there's rock falls all around you. I also, like I mentioned earlier, I, I had lived in Hong Kong for a bit and I endured several typhoons there. It's so amazing to witness mother nature sometimes and just be in complete awe by her strength. Like when I was living in India, Nepal, I was also doing quite a bit of mountaineering. It's so amazing to go to these pristine mountains and just think, wow, this is amazing. But it also puts you in your place because you realize that you're so tiny and um, you are really at their mercy, the mercy of mother nature. And so it's a very humbling experience also, because I think so much in our life, we are taught just to have an ego and to lead with our ego and think we know best. And I think mother nature is a good reminder that we're not in charge. <laughs> and I appreciate the reminders and I'm grateful so far. It hasn't led to any direct impact to myself, but yeah, I have definitely witnessed her in action on several occasions and they've been very moving moments for sure. Literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> So what is on the horizon for you? I can see that you're completely dedicated to this. Where do you see yourself in the next five years with respect to this project and what you intend to continue doing? It's been really, I'm so excited for 2022. 2021 just felt crazy. And so for lots of reasons, some of which I've mentioned. So I'm really excited for 2022 because it finally feels like I have a sense of footing of where I want to go with the business. Like I said, the strategic work we've been doing has really helped us get very clear on how we're going to proceed. When you're running a startup, things are constantly changing and evolving. Like every day is a new day, which is exciting and great, but it's also, oh man, you never know where you're going. You're trying to find some type of path along the way. So it's nice to kind of be in this new stage where we're still in startup mode, but we have a lot more clarity about how we can get to that next step. And we're starting to connect with the right people. The right people are sort of just presenting themselves to us, which is amazing. Uh, people who are very aligned with what we're doing and they really stand for what we stand for and they want to see it flourish. And I think that's the beautiful thing about, again, going back to knowing you're doing the right thing in this world is when you start, the people just start coming to you and you're just great. Uh, <laughs> and things just start to lift off. So yeah, where I see this going is I've pretty much surrendered my job in government because I was still doing this and working in government up until recently. And it's just become clear that I need just to step into this next phase. And in order to do that, I have to sort of surrender my other job. And so there's been a lot of adjustment, but it feels really good. I feel very supported by the universe and just knowing that this is where I need to go. I need to almost be willing to step into this phase and let go of some of the past to make room for what's new. So yeah, we're really excited to get our new iteration to market. We're going to be launching a crowdfund campaign this year, again with our soap dish. And then we're going to start working on another product. Not totally sure what that is exactly yet, so I don't want to share. But yeah, just really working at building up the business, connecting with other retailers who share the same sort of philosophy as us. And really getting our mission of what this lifestyle, what these values are in the homes and in the lives of more people. Because I believe that there's so many people who connect with this idea of really wanting to do good and really wanting to have an impact. And so we just want to be there to support people in, in those values that they have through our products. And that's really exciting. <laughs> I couldn't think of a better way to conclude our conversation. How best would anyone who is interested in either purchasing or in some way collaborating with you, how would someone be able to get in touch with you in order to make that happen? 
You can find us, like I said, our website is flipsideplastics with an S.com. You can find us on Instagram or LinkedIn, or you can just go to our website and drop us an email. But yeah, we will be having more products available by the spring. And so we're definitely excited for that. Yeah, we just love to see you in our weekly, in our, we send out a monthly newsletter, like I said. So if you want to sign up for a monthly newsletter and keep tabs on what we're doing, we'd love to have you part of the team. That's absolutely wonderful. And Laska, the book that you published, if someone wanted to get that book, how would they be able to purchase it and the title of it? Yeah, it's still on Amazon. Uh, (laughs) So it's on Amazon. It's called Passion Over Pass, Transforming the World Together, One Testimony at a Time. You know, it's funny. I'm still so proud of that book. (laughs) It's, it was one of those things that it was really a life's calling. And I, pursued it and I did it. And I met some of the most amazing women and people whose stories are in that book. And just when I ever have a hard day, I honestly still pull it off the shelf and read some of their stories and remind myself that we can always overcome adversity. It's it's just a matter of reminding yourself of your power of choice. And so I, I might be biased, but I'd say it's, if you're definitely looking for something in your life, to if you faced adversity and you're looking about how to overcome it, please do pick up a copy of that book. Oh, I will definitely advocate that for everybody who is listening and will be listening. And uh, you are one of the rare human beings I know that is walking their talk and not paying lip service to something without actually living it on a day-to-day basis. Congratulations for all that you've done and all that you're doing, Laska. It's more than one lifetime with respect to what you're (laughs) contributing to the world today. And I really feel blessed knowing you. And I hope we can perhaps have a subsequent conversation in the future based on, I know that you're going to be doing a bunch of other extraordinary things because that's just who you are. So thank you so much for dedicating your time to contributing what you have experienced and, and that beautiful spirit of yours Uh, I look forward to seeing and talking with you again soon. Great. Thanks so much, Yvonne. A great big shout out to Marie, Ingrid, Jeannie, Gail, and co-producer Danielle for continuing to serve as supporters of this podcast. If you see value in the continuance of the information being provided Consider being a patron and joining us at Patreon slash Godbox Cafe. Until we meet again, which will be very shortly, as I had taken a brief interlude during the summer to rekindle my flame and recharge my battery. So be prepared for loads of content and big love to you all.